This is Swampside Chats, a podcast where every week, communists sit down to shoot the shit about current events, history, political economy, and theory. This week, we sit down to discuss Militarism and Anti-Militarism by Karl Liebknecht. I'm Jake. I'm with Communist League Tampa, and joining me tonight is Donald. Hey, it's Donald. And Rosa. Uh, Rosa Janice. CLT. Woo. So, uh, this week, we're talking about a piece by uh, Karl Liebknecht, I think is how it's pronounced. Uh, Militarism and Anti-Militarism. So, a little background on Karl Liebknecht. He's probably most famous for being... The other major figure uh, in the Spartacist uh, uprising, along with Rosa Luxemburg, uh, both of them were killed by the Free Corps and are sort of uh, celebrated as like martyrs of uh, the failed German Revolution. Um, and, you know, that gives a lot of poignancy to a lot of what he's talking about in this piece, uh, where he's basically talking about how, and he says right in the beginning how the question of social democracy will ultimately come down to a military question at some point. And uh, yeah, that was pretty uh, prophetic, given um, what ended up happening to his party, and how basically the contents of this book would eventually be completely ignored by the movement. Well, it's interesting too because it does it ties into because early on in it, like he talks about Bismarck basically telling basically they were going to have to. It was a huge problem that the Social Democrats were basically doing entryism into the military and sections of it, and how eventually, like, the military would have to kill supporters of the SPD, and th- they weren't trained to do that is going to cause, like, a huge problem. Yeah, Bismarck was basically advising the Kaiser that that would, have, that would happen eventually, but the Kaiser kind of wavered because, you know, he didn't want to basically be known as, like, the bloody prince, or the shrapnel prince, rather. Since this was the, this the same, one of the same major forces in keeping the SPD illegal... You know, you'd think that they would pay attention to the kind of deeper implications of the state's opposition to their very existence and how this would come to be a problem sooner or later. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting how the SPD was able to basically operate well illegal through a, a, a combination of parliamentary, because they did have a parliamentary faction, and that was their main way of getting through to the masses. And like you said, they also did military entryism, which is really interesting because, for example, in Afghanistan, 79, one of the reasons the uh, Saar revolution happened was because of mass uh, entryism into the military. Well, I guess I found most interesting about this was kind of how he's describing the transition of pre-capitalist aristocratic militarism into capitalist militarism. Because there is a common view in the Second International that capitalist militarism was really just a hangover of like the pre-capitalist aristocratic classes, and that essentially capitalism—this was most common with people like Bernstein, 
but you get a little bit of this in Kotsky too, where basically the um the military apparatus of the bourgeois state is a hangover from feudalism. And Liebnik is very much arguing against this, saying that no, there's actually militarism is integral to capitalism and it takes a different form under capitalism. And part of the challenge of the capitalist state is kind of moving from, you know, your aristocratic feudal based armies to the sort of, you know, standing capitalist armies that we have today. Yeah, another like aspect of this that he talks about is kind of really how militarism and you know even beyond like the transition, you know, to contemporary the contemporary era, how militarism really is a double-edged sword, how it's basically aimed both at the external and internal enemy, and how you know I mean ultimately kind of in any revolutionary situation, like the military will to a certain extent decide the direction that things go. Uh, and typically, like the ruling class wants to condition the military such that it would be willing to basically follow orders under any and all circumstances, including you know turning on the population of of, uh, of their own countries. Yeah, and um, there's an interesting point that Liebnik brings up how in the colonial armies, the officers have no real problem, you know, commanding their militaries because there's this whole idea of racial superiority. And this kind of like colonial prestige that, you know, they get from participating in the colonial army. Whereas in the mother country or whatever, the military doesn't have this, um, you know, this idea of supremacy over their fellow countrymen. So therefore, there's a need to imbue the army with a heavily nationalistic and militaristic ideology and basically train people to kill on command without question and how nationalism is a really important part of this and then he goes even further on to say how this spreads the society as a whole and not just the military and how society itself becomes imbued with the spirit of militarism and ensuring that the standing army can function as needed and i was going to say it kind of reminds me of Gramsci's hegemony theory but he's focusing more on how um, war propaganda and militarism kind of uses that um, is a part of that kind of hegemonic um, apparatus, whatever you want to call it. Right. Not that, well, not a, you know, not that I'm trying to defend Gramsci, but it just kind of shows <laughs> these ideas were invented by him. <laughs> yeah. Well, and you can see that, like, if you kind of read about, like, you know, kind of the basic training procedures of any, like, modern army. And the way, like, it's very explicitly designed to sort of remove, like, any personal sense of agency and subsume you completely to this group and, you know, basically get train you, train you to basically follow orders without question under any and all circumstances. And, you know, you contrast that with something more like, say, like a popular militia, which would have, like, you know, roots in the community and would have, like, some kind of, and probably wouldn't be wouldn't be disciplined like in the same you know to the same sort of extreme extent of like command structure that you have on like a modern capitalist military or even maybe i don't know i guess I, I, this is this is tricky because like my knowledge of military history is pretty lacking here this will probably become apparent like the more we go into this podcast but like I would imagine, too, like pre-capitalist military formations were probably i mean were probably not known at least 
in terms of like recruiting the wider population into war for like the strictest kind of conditioning that you get with even like basic troops now, right? Because like in feudalism, wasn't it just like a lot of uh, the lords had like kind of their central units and knights and so forth, and when there was a war, they would basically round up peasants to go fight. You know, this- yeah. Generally, before like the develop before like the Napoleonic Wars, milit like serving in the milit and the French Revolution, serving in the military wasn't really an honorable thing unless you were like an aristocratic officer. Most of the people that served in like armies were not really perfect, not really professionals, and they were mostly like criminals, and and they were viewed as such by the rest of society, uh, European societies. Yeah, but you did have like a like an aristocracy of the sword that led these armies. And yeah, the aristocrats would. Yeah, the leadership was based off bloodline rather than like merit. Yeah, and that generally changed like with the Napoleonic Wars, with yeah. like, the rise of like professional armies and like merit-based. Uh, rewards for uh, merit-based ranks. Well, and another thing is that um, what Liebnik, um notices, or what he points out, is that in like the feudal aristocratic army, what's needed to get people to line up and die for the cause is the belief that you know the um, the political leadership is ordained by God. And so, therefore, you know, they're if you know they're going to die honorably, fighting for king and country and God, you know. And so that's what makes people kind of willing to um, follow orders. Whereas in a capitalist army, you know, what exact? Why? Why exactly are you going to die? You know. Right. Well, I mean, I think I mean, I, and on that level, I don't know if the ideology is that different. I mean, particularly in like Leibniz era, because you know a lot of a lot of the reason they were able to rally people to go fight in World War One was this idea that the Germans are going to come over, they're going to pillage your towns, they're going to rape your women, so we have to defend our, our country over here, right? Well, yeah, exactly. But it shifts from religion to nationalism. But is is that that different from like feudal society? Isn't the same thing? Like you know, like these these fucking uh, Danes are going to come over here on their longboats and they're going to burn our cities and rape our women and pillage our land. Like, I mean, it, it, there is there is kind of just like a defensist thorough line throughout all of this beyond like, I mean, obviously like the ideological superstructure changes and the social relations change, but I'm just saying there probably is like a certain level of continuity in, in terms of like appealing to people's instincts to get them to, you know, join up to fight a war essentially. Yeah, but a defensive war like how do right. you get troops to go to another country and kill other people that's yeah well, yeah when it comes to imperialism yeah that's another question i mean in the united states we've we've been able to do it you know in mo in, in the u.s has been able to do it by basically not admitting we're an empire and saying either well you know uh the era the brown people in the middle east they attacked us on 9-11 so now we got to go over there and kill a bunch of them or yeah, even Vietnam, it was like, well, the commies are taking over the world, and we have to stop them like we stopped Hitler, right? So, you know, there's like a weirdly defensist appeal in the ideological superstructure of the United States. What's more interesting is like England and, you know, France and Italy, 
uh, which I'm not as familiar with how they were. I mean, I guess there was like the white man's burden was like one component of that at the time. This idea that we need to like civilize the world and the sort of savage races uh, by uh, exploiting them or whatever. I forget, I forget what the exact details of that are. Well, I think that in the U.S., the, the kind of militarist ideology has become this idea that we're an empire of liberty, which is a phrase that goes all the way back to Thomas Jefferson, and that essentially we need to make the safe, the world safe for liberty and freedom. And the United States has kind of this God-given right to um, be the country, like the city on the hill that protects the rest of the world from the barbarism of, of everyone else. Yeah, that's a good point. And I, and I guess I should have mentioned the, you know, basically, you know, settler colonialist aspect of most of our history. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Because we were founded as a, a settler colony and rather than through a bourgeois revolution against a monarchy, um, our whole ideology of militarism is more so, like I said, it's about spreading democracy you know as as you know that's why neoconservatism became such a big big thing after vietnam because with communism no longer you know something that we can justify going to war against it becomes you know about this idea that us militarism is like a tool of freedom yeah that there's like these there's these bad people out there who are just like keeping people from freedom and if we just get rid of the bad people then they'll have freedom and so regarding like social imperialism in the left, I think that it has very different kind of ideological roots than it did in Leibniz's time. Because when the SPD voted for war credits, it was on defensist grounds, essentially, that the war would not become like a huge imperialist aggressive war, but it would simply be a war on German soil to protect us from... The Russian invaders. That was the initial justification for, you know, supporting the war. Because if you read Marx, you can actually see him saying stuff like, yeah, if Russia invaded Germany and the war was on German soil, then like it would be the workers' job to protect the motherland. And he was also, you know, very fearful of Russia as, you know, being this huge reactionary power. Kind of like how liberals are today, actually. <laughs> but um, <laughs> so in World War One, it was this idea that you know we need to um defend our country. That kind of was at the root of social imperialism. At least you know beyond the Bernstein types who are just outwardly like pro-colonialist. But today in America, the militarist ideology, like I said before, it's 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 this idea that we have this grand um historical need to to spread democracy as we call it i mean i think there's still a defensive element to like modern american like militarism like specifically with like um specifically with like the war on terror is essentially still defenseless like we have this like ambiguous threat of terrorism which is ever present and like basically it can be almost anything really but it's usually like it's been more or less focused on like muslim nations and that sort of thing since that's the needs of the imperial empire at this point is like to regulate and like control them 
Well, what's, inter- what's interesting about the United States now, at least, is that there is this kind of split between what kind of the head, like the kind of ruling elite wants to be kind of the ideology and the kind of, there is kind of, I think, in the population a resistance to, they say like stuff with Iran, like going into Iran. Like clearly, like they've had a hard on to go in for Iran for decades, but most people don't really give a shit about Iran at the end of the day. So it's a hard, like it's a hard sell, basically. So there is, I think in the United States, just because the population isn't as interested in like a geography outside the United States, there's kind of a sense of like, well, what does any of that shit have to do with us? Why do we have to go there? Like you can bang the war drum on, on cable news and get people stirred up to a certain extent, but that'll only get people so pot committed on it. Um, yeah. But yeah, I mean, it's, it's interesting, like looking at like the differences in terms of, I mean, there are, there are strong, I mean, like, because what Liebnick is talking about is the era of like the emergence of like modern capitalist militarism. It is interesting looking at kind of the differences and the similarities. You know, now we're in a state where like militarism has like a, I mean, this was probably true back then too, but like so much of like um, production is like so much of like capitalist production is like built around this kind of ever increasing arms race to develop like the latest and best weapon, like. Because I guess this was when, when was this written? Like I'm trying to, what was the year on this? This was seven. Yeah. Okay. So this was this was because this was prior to World War One, and World War the gap between World War One and World War Two kind of like the capitalist class kind of began to uh, the different nation the capitalist nations of the world between those wars sort of learned how much of warfare was won really by production, right? Like, that's where they learned that it was really whoever could outproduce would win. Well, I think what Leibniz points out is how, yeah, in pre-capitalist societies, you do have, you know, militaries and stuff. And there is, you know, need to um, conquer other countries. But under capitalism, this military production becomes subsumed to capitalist production and capitalist production needs to expand value constantly and constantly. And so you have all these firms designing new and more powerful weapons. But eventually, but, you know, for those profits to be realized in building those weapons, the government has to um, pay them and use them in war. And so you have military lobbies heavily, you know, influencing the government. Like, um... This kind of a diversion, but with, for example, of Israel, a lot of people will focus on critiquing APAC or, you know, the, the quote unquote Jewish lobby as being like the main force that keeps American interests aligned with Israel. When the reality is that it's more so the Northrop Grumman lobby that maintains that tie because the U.S. and Israel are both, you know, constantly developing new military technology and in israel that's where a lot of that stuff is being tested on you know through the ethnic cleansing of palestinians and their so-called you know war on terror which is bullshit and so i think when we start looking at the arms industries and their economic needs we can start to develop a better picture of why 
you know, we go to war in some cases and why we side with certain powers so loyally. Well, yeah, and just beyond that, there's just also like the military Keynesian aspect where, you know, just basically one major way to sort of help keep the economy afloat is to just build a bunch of shit and to keep that money basically flowing into the economy. And, you know, because the, you know, because the whole war machine is already in place, like it's easier to just kind of leave that running than it is to, well, there's, and there's also, of course, the component of having global military hegemony has numerous like economic advantages and has, you know, probably created a stabilizing situation, which has allowed sort of the period of globalization of like the last 30 years and like a sort of increasing like consolidation of the world market. Yeah, I think, like, post-Cold War, you know, as Dugan would say, there's a unipolar world order where the U.S. is basically just completely uncontested in its military strength, and it is basically the empire that rules the world. And, I mean, if you look at a chart of military power versus the other most powerful countries, it's still, you know, um, the U.S. is just completely uncontested. There's no debate about it but at the same time i think the stability that this kind of era has produced is kind of over you know, it's overplayed and how unipolar the world really is i think is overplayed because i think other nations are going to try to become imperial powers and contest the u.s and i think that the u.s as an imperial power is pretty convincingly in a, in a state of decline. Uh, even State Department people, I believe, have like said this as much. And so we're kind of, I think I can see the world capitalism moving again into a, um, a period where... There's inter-imperialist conflict. There's inter-imperialist conflict. And I think the war in Syria is kind of a um, starting point of that. Yeah, that's, what really, that's what's really scary is like how much... That's another. That is kind of another like rhyming aspect that we could really be moving back into an era similar to, again, the period that Liebnick was talking about, where but the stakes are so much higher because you know basically in this in this scenario the U.S. is basically the old British Empire, and we're basically in a period of decline, and there's ascending like you know potential inter-imperialist powers, and it's kind of amazing like how how. You have, like, on the one hand, you have Trump and, like, following kind of Bannonism, this idea that China's our great enemy and we have to prepare for, like, an increasing tensions with China. On the other hand, you have, like, liberals, like, screaming about Russia and just seem, like, eager to, like, start, you know, some kind of war with them. And, yeah, I, I mean, I, I think... Iran, who everyone wants to invade. <laughs> <laughs> I think that, yeah, it's really... We, this is a scary area that we're headed into <laughs> because now we have the atom bomb. And everybody is way better armed than they were before. Well, another point I'd make is that global capitalism is honestly more similar in structure to what it was like during Liebnick's time than what it was like in the post-war era, in my opinion, where you kind of had like this post-war compromise. I think what people call neoliberalism is in a lot of ways a return to the um, type of liberal capitalism that ruled from 1870 to 1945 or so. I mean, yeah, I think a lot of people would say that just from, I mean, if you just kind of step back and take a look at it for a second, you see like the, the, the it's, 
it, it's coming more and more to resemble what Marx talked about when he did, when he described capitalism, right? Like, you know, in in wealthy countries, there's this increasing wealth divide, right? Like, it's 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 um, yeah. I mean, it's but again, like things didn't go so well in the early 20th century, and the other downside is is that the strength of the proletarian movement currently is far weaker than it was at the beginning of the 20th century. So, you know, plus there's also like the whole ecological t- catastrophe. Which is the other aspect of like the twenty first century? So, yeah, there's a question if our planet could even survive another world war. As a history nerd regarding the Second International, I thought the um, stuff on anti militarism abroad was interesting. Where he yeah. just goes through um, different countries and talks about what their anti militarist movements were like. And um, it's interesting. A lot of um, a lot of the organizations he talks about are actually anarchist organizations, and he's kind of um, saying like, yeah, there is like anti-militarist agitation going on, but it's not enough because the growth of militarism is, you know, a sign almost of an impending catastrophe that we're going to have to battle, and it's almost foreboding the message he sends across. I don't know, throughout the thing, he's basically, I think he's arguing against, like, complete abstention. Um, he does say he, that, like, we should join the military. And he does say we should fight for, a, I think, a, a conscript army, basically. Because the idea is that if a country has a conscript army and everyone's required to fight, it's less likely to pursue wars that don't have, like, the mass support of the people, I guess. But the problem is, is that through propaganda and whatnot the the masses can be brought to war well that's another aspect too that's maybe like different in terms of like modern militarism versus like early capitalist militarism is that now like the propaganda machine is so much like more extensive than it was like you know in the early 20th century like after this was written it's been the era when you know the art of propaganda and of like you know manufacturing consent so to speak, really became like a major industry and like a major almost science um, in a way that was able to sort of shape public perception where, whereas this was still early enough, you know, where a bunch of people like running around with like pamphlets and newspapers and giving them to people who don't have access to a lot of media typically, like that could make a big impact, you know? Yeah. I mean, like the United States military actually offers like funding for like films if they like use the military, if they like, um, and allows them to like use military, actual military equipment and that sort of thing. If they allow them to like monitor and like edit the screenplays and that sort of thing, like if they can go through and approve it. So basically, like Hollywood allows them to create props. Hollywood and the military work together to basically create propaganda. That's how, like, the Transformers films are, and that sort of thing are. Yeah, pretty much it. But I did know there was a connection with video games in the military. Uh, I I was going to talk about America's Army. That was, like, an early example. Although, that's, that's a pretty old game at this point. Like, I don't even know if they give that out anymore. I'll confess, when I was younger, I was in Boy Scouts, and I went to the Boy Scout National Jamboree. And um, the entire thing was basically just like a big display 
of military of like how awesome the military was and they gave out free copies of america's army and it was just blatant like militarist propaganda so um even just like participating in like something like boy scouts you get and i think um i don't know boy scouts is definitely heavily tied to the military in the u.s like they brag about how many like people who become Eagle Scouts, which is the highest rank, will go on to later like be in the military and stuff. It's really uh, disgusting. Well, and even just go to a football game, you know what I mean? Like they'll have, they'll do like the flyovers and they'll roll the flag out and you know the whole fucking thing. You know, and there'll be some part where you know something about the troops. You know, I mean, it's yeah, it's 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 deeply. Uh, it's deeply inscribed into like popular culture, and it's really escalated. Like after nine eleven was the thing. Like that got that basically all that got kind of put in there, and then it just kind of stayed and never really went away. Another thing with like the war on terrorism, and it it allows like the spread of militarism to be like used against like the American public itself. Like you become the enemy essentially. The American public becomes the enemy. There's an insider enemy within the American public and this like ties into like the expansion of intelligence services and uh, um, the NSA and that sort of thing. Yeah. The closest thing you had to that back then was like the bomb throwing anarchist. Yeah. uh, I mean, I think this kind of has to do with the fact that the U S military uses such an insane amount of propaganda probably has to do with the fact that we're not a conscript army. We don't have a draft anymore. And so we have to basically have a public who believes strong enough, strongly enough in American nationalism that they will volunteer to go to war. And a lot of it has to do with like technology and the fact that, you know, we don't need as much technology in order to militarily, militarily intervene. But if you ever actually thought about it and imagined like, could the U.S. pull off another Iraq and actually put troops on the ground and occupy another country, say Iran? It's really hard for me to imagine that having enough public support that, you know, tons of people will join the military. But at the same time, there's this kind of economic draft where, you know, you're basically, you know, promised, you know, a road almost out of proletarianization if you join the military. And so it's maybe, it, it, you know, I don't know. It's hard to say. Yeah, there would need to be like another, like, basically, we did need another 9 11 in, in order to pull off an Iran. Yeah. And I think um, at the same time, though, if you read the average, you know, liberal take on what happened in Gaza recently, it does actually make you lose faith in, you know, Americans. I think it's more so that Americans just like don't want to risk their life for anything than they actually give a fuck about the casualties of war, which is just another big point about like a military is, you know, you to have a military, you have to have a people, you have to have a group of large amount of people who are willing to die for a cause. And if you don't have that, the military just won't fight. And I think that's kind of why, you know, the military in the, and the Russian civil war was able to win was because they believed in what they were fighting for and they were willing to die for the Soviet Republic or whatever. I think in the civil, the U S civil war, the union army was able to win because they 
felt like they were fighting for something that was worth dying for. But um, in Iraq, because of 9-11, I guess enough Americans were convinced that like they were fighting for something that was worth dying for. But I think just the idea of global democracy is, is not going to get Americans to be down with you know large-scale interventions. And honestly, like... A lot of the people who seem to be the most like avid supporters of U.S. intervention in the Middle East now seem to be like far leftist. I don't know. Like, am I the only person who's been noticing this? I mean, I wouldn't say it's the only. It, that might be a, a filtering result of like the Facebook uh, social media algorithms that we use. Oh well, yeah, but I'm, what I'm saying, obviously, there's like neocon hacks and other liberal hacks who are advocating for intervention. But on the other hand, like surprisingly, the far left has been taking a pretty pro-interventionist attitude. Yeah, it, it's really it's really bizarre. Um, I think I mean, and the thing is, I think most of the, I think most of the U- U.S. population, a call to like spread democracy abroad, isn't going to have much pull because we don't have democracy here. <laughs> so because of that, like it's too abstract. You know, it's like it's it's people need something more real that they can latch on to, right? Like, that's what was so useful about 9-11, and, you know, probably why there's so there's so much pull to the conspiracy theory that Bush did it, because it's kind of the perfect thing that you need, like, it kills a lot of people, but not too many, it's extremely, it's like an extremely visible act, it's like these two towers, like, sticking up in the sky, you know, like, everyone can see it, you know, um, it's something you can play over and over again on TV, because it's, it's not too gruesome, you know? Yeah. So, it's like a, that's like an image that was like seared into people's mind that they could latch onto and try to try to avenge. But that only goes so far and lasts so long, you know. I remember back in the day, the motto was "We're fighting them there, so we don't have to fight them here." You know, right. It was this real mythology that we needed to invade countries in the Middle East to protect the ordinary civilian from terrorism. But now it's kind of like you know things have been there hasn't really. I mean, there have been like there was the you know. A bunch of people got blew up in Boston, but was, there's never been anything like like our own home homegrown psychos have exceeded like anything that's come from like the Muslim world, you know, over the last shit sixteen seventeen years. So now it's at a point where things are kind of even up again. Where people are like, yeah, why do we need to be over there? Like, what are we doing? And and so yeah, it's it's really only people who are already like heavily ideological in some way or other. We're going to say like, yeah, let's, you know, we need to go there because Assad is an enemy to the people of Syria, or you know, we need to go into Iran because uh, they made the CIA look bad one time, and that's not cool. I, you know, like that. Oh, and a very small fraction of the of most people in this country really give a shit about any of that. Well, one funny thing I've heard about Iran is that um. Basically, because of its clerical, theocratic, anti-democratic regime, there can't be a proletarian revolution in Iran unless this regime is overthrown. But this regime can't be overthrown except by an outside force. And so, therefore, the true leftist thing to do would be to support, you know, U.S. overthrow of Iran to install democracy. Which is similar to the arguments that some people on the left made about Iraq. That, you know, if we invaded Iraq and reconstructed it on democratic lines, it would put the workers' movement in a stronger position. And if we left 
Iraq without reconstructing it enough, then the workers' movement would be massacred, which is just, you know, absurd, obviously. Was that something put forward by, like, uh, Shatman, like, uh, the workers... Workers' Alliance. Liberty Alliance or whatever. Or well, the, didn't, didn't, the Iraq, didn't the Iraqi Communist Party support the invasion? Yes, they did. And they actually now tow a very anti-U.S. like US intervention line, surprisingly. Like, they learned from that mistake big time. Aren't they caucusing with somebody who's like... Uh... Yeah, Sadir. Yeah. Yeah, they, they're literally in government with um, kind of a, a popular cleric. He's That's, not. He's kind of like a relatively progressive kind of cleric, like really anti. I, I mean, I, I hope so. If if they're backing him. Well, I mean, I wouldn't put too much hope into what's going on in Iraq because we all know what happens when communists join coalition governments with capital. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I to be honest, like I'd say, like kind of is a positive development in a way, in the sense of like what else is going on in the Middle East any better. So I don't want to counter signal like people who are excited about that too hard because it just kind of into contrarianism and you know right. nothing nothing's good enough you know only the real revolution is going to meet my ideal standards and so considering like the utter destruction of communism by U.S. backed Islamic reaction in the Middle East like it is somewhat promising to see communists have some electoral success like. Even I mean that that I I just think it would be hilarious if they somehow managed to like win a general election and like Iraq went communist like after all that like that would be the funniest shit ever like I could I could die in peace like seeing that happen just you know after all after all that stuff about like if they if they got like a full parliamentary democracy and then the Iraqi people used it to go communist that would be the most yeah. amazing and hilarious thing I've ever seen I mean I mean, it's not going to happen, but I just, it would just be, it would just be so funny. Well, what would happen would be they would either just completely buck out and like not do any of the stuff that would be needed to be done, like arming the people and forming like a commune type government and expropriating key industries, you know, or they would do that and would throw Iraq into a civil war and then other Middle Eastern countries would probably intervene. And then imperialist powers would intervene, and it would be just like a huge shit show. What if, what if, like, what if the? I'm just gonna play with Legos here for a minute. What if, like, the Iraqi Communist Party took power, and then that activated like the proletarian forces in, in Iran, and then those two things linked up, and that then would they, be beautiful. <laughs> then, and then it turns out that like, you know, basically that became like the focal point for like the re sparking of like the world communist revolution. That'd be fucking hilarious. And then finally everyone like unites to um overthrow Israel. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's like it's like that Simpsons thing where all the people are the world are holding hands to like the Israeli proletariat finally becomes woke enough to practice defeatism. I, mean, <laughs> I, I could see like the workers world party and the PSL coming together to denounce the Iranian worker Iranian oh. workers. That kind of As CIA, uh, CIA uh, agents and shit like that. Oh, that kind of goes into another problem. With the modern left is a kind of false anti-imperialism, and I am 
I don't know. I've been having trouble talking about this because a lot of times denunciations of this false imperialism, like, you know, like people who basically literally support Assad, support the Iranian government, stuff like that. Like, I think we all agree that that's a stupid line. It's probably just as, in a way, as stupid as supporting U.S. intervention. Maybe not as stupid, I think. I think supporting, like, U.S. imperialism is a bigger sin if you are American. Well, you, yeah, you can understand it. I can understand that stuff on some, le- like, a base level where you just kind of root for the underdog. But yeah. that's not good politics. At least you're like, you know, I can see... It's, it's not good politics, but... At the same time, I find the people who decide that the U.S. actually can, like, help, you know, the Syrians create democracy against Assad, like, as almost, like, you know, worse. Yeah, it's like, are you new here? Yeah, it's, it's, just, it's just like you're literally cheering on, like, one of the biggest oppressors of the world. And I feel like a lot of, like, counter-signaling of um, that kind of vulgar anti-imperialism is often a way to um, hide other, like a kind of soft on imperialism position. Where basically like, well, the US is like modern and progressive and capitalist, whereas like these people are more regressive and live in like third world countries. And so if there's no proletarian side, why not like support the US, which is more advanced and productive forces? Well, you're basically you're basically like a step away from Christopher Hitchens at that point. Well, yeah, that's kind of what I'm. I, I really think that it's easy to go into that this obsession with counter signaling anti imperialism to where eventually, like, you're apologizing for imperialism. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah, it's yeah, it's ridiculous. It's bad politics, and it. I think you know a part of that happens because they see so much of like anti imperialist thought is lumped in with like tankyism. And just supporting like whatever tin pot dictator went to the UN and said the US was bad one time, you know. So it's like, I it's 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 an endless hall of mirrors refracting contrarianism against each other into a negative dialectic of idiocy. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> the the PSL WWA the PSL like what is World Workers Party style left. I like to call them crypto Duganist because like they basically are crypto Duganist. They think that we need to have a multipolar world instead of a unipolar world before revolution can be on the table, which basically means that like before we can like oppose the Russian or Iranian bourgeoisie, we have to wait for them to become as strong as the American bourgeoisie. So they can, I don't know. It's a weird, there's a weird ideology they have. Well, I guess it's just like we need to root for the underdog and like no matter what. And if the proletariat were to overthrow, say, the Iranian state, it would just it would be bad because the U.S. would just take advantage of it somehow. Like even then, it would be a bad thing. Well, and I mean, and the, what's I mean, I guess if you you know really think that Lenin's idea of turning the inner imperialist war into a proletarian civil war was the best you know, best thing, then yeah, maybe you would want it. You'd need like an inner imperialist war first that you can get people to turn into a proletarian civil war. Yeah, but I'm, I'm not convinced that Russia isn't necessarily an imperialist power because it is true that it has a far less intensive concentration of monopoly capital in the U.S., but it definitely, I, 
Russia, there is finance and monopoly capital in Russia. I mean, it, it certainly aspires to be. Yeah, so it's, definitely, it's, it's not as strong as the U.S., but there's definitely, it has, like, if you read Lenin's imperialism and go down the checklist, like, yeah, Russia does have these qualities of uh, increasing centralization of monopoly capital that's tied to state capital that influences the decisions of the state in geopolitical affairs. And like uh, in Lenin's War and Revolution, it's actually one of my favorite um, pieces by him. That was worth is worth reading as this, but it's after World War One. He says there's basically three types of wars. There's interimperialist interimperialist wars, which are essentially wars between slave owners of how many slaves that they'll get in the final auction. You know that's interimperialist wars. Then you have, you know, the proletariat's you know war to overthrow capitalism, and that's legitimate. And he says also wars of colonies to overthrow their um, oppressors are legitimate. And so the only way you could really say that like it's legitimate to support Assad or Putin from a Russian, I mean, sorry, from a uh, from a you know revolutionary defeatist position would be to say that like Assad and Putin and Iran are like colonial powers that are occupied, which is just like an absurd position yeah but the, the ml solution to this is to create a new category called neo-colonialism <laughs> where basically colonialism yeah we defeated that in the national liberation revolutions but it was just replaced by neo-colonialism which is the informal empire of the u.s and so therefore anyone who is fighting against u.s hegemony regardless of their reactionary you know, agenda, and Assad does have a very reactionary agenda, in my opinion, especially the Syrian Social Nationalist Party, which is growing in, in Syria. But anyway, they would say that basically these people are victims of American neocolonialism and fighting for national sovereignty against imperialism, and so therefore, it's a it's it's defensism is you know okay, but like at that point, you've added you've made so much. So many variations on Lenin's like theory that it's like not you know it's kind of hard to use the original theory to justify it in the first place. Uh, there any, are there any final thoughts? Uh, militarism and anti-militarism. I think we're all firmly anti-militarist on that one. Yeah, I would just say you know we need to be anti-militarist and anti-imperialist, but we need to be you know, truly anti-imperialist in the sense of, you know, not siding with the national bourgeoisie who oppresses their proletariat. And we need to um, also, you know, be against cruise missile leftism. Yep. And honestly, both camps are so, like, dominant right now. It's left me kind of depressed. That's it for this week. If you'd like to get a hold of us, you can email us at swampsidechats at gmail.com. If you'd like to support the show, you can leave us a good review on iTunes, like our Facebook page, or you could straight up give us some money. Uh, to do that, you could send it through PayPal to communistleagueoftampa at gmail.com. Or if you use the cash app, dollar sign CLTampa. 
so until next time, keep your boots clean, your feet out of the swamp, and your head in the revolutionary clouds of tomorrow. <laughs>